from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, we'll hear about a first-of-its-kind mental health center in Baton Rouge, and later, a conversation with former Louisiana Poet Laureate Mona Lisa Soloy, who celebrates Black History Month by shining a light on the 7th Ward in New Orleans. But first... A bill that would expand execution methods in Louisiana is making its way through the legislature this week as part of Governor Jeff Landry's special session on crime. One of the key groups fighting the bill is the Capital Appeals Project. Politics reporter Molly Ryan spoke to Executive Director Cecilia Cappell for more. Tell me more about the Capital Appeals Project's work in Louisiana. Who are your clients and what cases are you working on? Yeah, the Capital Appeals Project was founded in 2001 to represent men and women who have been sentenced to death in Louisiana. We represent all people that were sentenced to death on their direct appeals, which is their very first appeal in the process, and we represent a number of other individuals sentenced to death. Landry has said that the state has a contractual obligation to victims to carry out death penalty sentences, and lawmakers say the state needs more execution methods on the table so they can fulfill that obligation in the case that they can't get the drugs for a lethal injection. What's your response to that? Our response to that is, I don't mean to take away any of the pain of the victim's family, which is very real and very raw, but in a state that has an 84% reversal rate of death sentences, in a state that has far more exonerations than executions, that contract with the victims simply can't be kept. That would mean execution of people that have been found to be innocent and all of the vast number of people that have had their sentences or convictions reversed due to constitutional violations. What objections do you have specifically to using nitrogen gas or the electric chair to kill people on death row? It seems that the legislature has put these barbaric, new, extreme methods in the bill as sort of a subterfuge for what they really want, which is secret executions under cover of darkness, like they do in North Korea, like they do in Iran, where the inmate that is being executed and his family don't even know how they're being executed. So you're also concerned about how this bill to expand execution methods could also increase secrecy around executions. Why? Yeah, I mean, when the government is seeking to put somebody to death, that is the most important and weighty action that the government can ever make. And to do that in secret without the public scrutinizing those actions Um, is not who we are as Louisianians. That's not who we are as a country. We have a constitution for a reason. And transparency makes government work better, as we've seen in case after case. Can you speak to the exact language in the bill and the impact that you think it will have around secrecy with executions? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that There's drug manufacturers that want to sell drugs for executions and are not able to do so because of bullying or um, online pressure. That's simply not true. The drug manufacturers want to make medicines to heal patients, not to kill people. And they have told the Department of Corrections, don't use our drugs to kill people. 
But under this bill, the Department of Corrections could do just that because we would not know where the drugs or substances are coming from. We don't even know if they're going to use bleach to execute somebody. That would be completely shielded from public disclosure. And I would also add to that, it could lead to the drug manufacturer saying, we're not going to sell drugs to you, Department of Corrections. And that has happened in the past. Pfizer said, we are not selling any of our manufactured drugs to you unless you can guarantee to us that you're not going to use them to kill people. And so it threatens public health and it threatens the health of the aging prison population in Louisiana. Mm. So you're saying that includes basic drugs that they might need to treat prisoners who are sick? Absolutely. Insulin, saline bags, anything that the prison needs just to keep its prisoners safe and healthy. What are you worried will happen if this bill passes? I think that the worst case scenario is that the government is going to begin killing our prison inmates under cover of darkness, and we're not going to be able to find out how it is happening, when it's happening, and we're going to go into a very dark place as a state. And I don't think that we as Louisianians uh, want to do that. That's Cecilia Kappel, executive director of the Capital Appeals Project, speaking with politics reporter Molly Ryan. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Louisiana's first crisis receiving center, the Bridge Center for Hope in Baton Rouge, recently celebrated its third anniversary. The center provides essential health services to residents experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis. It also gives law enforcement and first responders a place to bring individuals in crisis rather than taking them to the parish prison or an overcrowded emergency room. With more on the Bridge Center, mental health, and the future of crisis receiving centers, Bridge Center Executive Director Charlotte Claiborne joins us now. Thanks, Charlotte, for being here. Thank you for having me. Charlotte, can you give us a little of the history on the uh, the Bridge Center of Hope? Talk some about what facilitated its its creation. It started out of a necessity. It, it The Bridge Center for Hope, the nonprofit itself, dates back to roughly around 2014, 2016. And it started with um, some individuals within our community wanting to address the need for crisis services because we were seeing an increase of individuals having mental health and substance use issues. And out of that, you, you started kind of understanding a little bit more of where these individuals were ending up because at the time they only had two options, which was the emergency room or to parish prison if they encountered law enforcement. So it was birthed out of necessity. At the end of the day, individuals having a behavioral crisis, jails was the last place that they needed to be. Well, what services do you offer at the Bridge Center? And what's your relationship like with law enforcement first responders? How do you work together to help individuals in crisis? What the Bridge Center for Hope does is it provides crisis stabilization for mental health and substance use. So we do the we mitigate the immediate need. It operates just like an emergency room but just for mental health and substance use. We don't do anything that's dealing with physical health or anything like that. Now, if someone was to come to the facility and there was a physical health issue that needed to be addressed, then what we would do is we'll coordinate with the emergency rooms where we would take that individual to um, a hospital for them to get medical clearance. And once they receive that medical clearance, then they can come back to the facility for us to address that mental health or that substance use component. But it's not 
an outpatient facility. It is an inpatient facility. We work one hand in hand with law enforcement. Um, in fact, we receive, um, I, I think if, if we look, it's about 30% of the individuals that come to us um, at the facility are escorted by first responders. And when I use the word first responders, I'm not talking about just law enforcement, but I'm also talking about paramedics, EMS here as well. So that we, or we are another destination alternative for them as well. So about 30% of the individuals that come to the facility are escorted by a first responder. And then the other 70% come in on their own um, through the front door. Let's talk some about the state of mental health here in the Baton Rouge area and across our state. So the state of Louisiana is, if you Google it or look it up, it's what we consider is is in a mental health crisis in the sense that we have about a 79% desert um, in terms of people being able to access care. Your Your major metropolitan cities have mental health services, but when you look at the state as a whole, you, you have more rural population than you do metropolitan populations. And so that rural area is lacking services. We're speaking with Charlotte Claiborne, Executive Director of the Bridge Center for Hope, a mental illness and drug crisis center in Baton Rouge. It's Louisiana's first crisis receiving center now in its third year. Now, Charlotte, three years ago, the Bridge Center of Hope was the only crisis receiving center in the state. Are you still the only uh, crisis receiving center, though, in the state of Louisiana? So, yes, we're still the only crisis receiving center in the state of Louisiana. However, we don't want to be the only crisis receiving center in the state. We we look at ourselves as pioneers and how we're forging ahead and trying to carve a path for other providers to be able to do the same exact or similar services. Um, I think part of the issue, though, for Louisiana is be- that the way that it is reimbursed is not sustainable for everyone. We are, we are a little unique in the fact that the Bridge Center for Hope is funded by taxpayers. In 2018, East Baton Rouge Parish passed a tax to fund a mental health crisis receiving center. And that is one of the main reasons why we are still operable and we're still successful is because we have additional funding outside of your Medicaid plans, outside of your Medicare and your commercial payers. Um, there are other the other cities or the other parishes do not have that model. They do not have that additional funding. So that makes it a, that makes it difficult and that makes it different for us compared to some, everyone else. In the three years that we've been open, we've served over eight thousand three hundred and four individuals. Um, now, of that eight thousand three hundred and four, we have admitted about seven thousand eight hundred and ninety five. So. That's that's a significant number when you look at us just being a facility in addition to all of the hospitals and everything else that we have. But that's how many people that we've served here in the East Baton Rouge Parish. That's a testament to the fact that it was a much needed facility. And we're looking in terms that is going that number is going to go higher in the next couple of years um, in terms of how many we serve annually. How, how is the Bridge Center staffed? So the Bridge Center is staffed with one executive director, which is myself. Um, Everyone else is contracted. So our service provider at the facility is RI International. So everyone who works at that facility is an RI International employee. That is our service provider. Are you getting any feelers or have you gotten any inquiry from other cities around the state about how to do this, about, you know, uh, what they can do to follow in your footsteps? 
I get calls all the time from people from other cities, um, also from other parishes. And so what we've done on our website is there in our research in trying to stand up the Bridge Center for Hope, we put we put all of our research on our webpage so that people can read um, the emergent method report of how it came about. We put all of our information out there. We're, we're not one of those people that's going to hide it and say, we don't want you to do it. We absolutely want you to do it. We absolutely want you to be able to provide services for those in need, because if, if not us, then who? Um, I, I will say this, our service provider, RI International, I have to give kudos to them because they've been providing crisis services for over 30 years. They're in 10 different states and they're also in, an, um, in another country as well. They are one of the authors for the SAMHSA um, guide or best practice toolkit for crisis services. So they're, they're, they're co-authors in that. So when we're talking about providing crisis services, we, we went and got one of the best to be able to provide that service for us. So it is not where we're trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just trying to expand the wheel. What do you see in the future for the Bridge Center and, and the possibility for other receiving centers to open up around the state? You know, for the Bridgener, I, I see a couple of things. One of the things that we are working on right now is expanding our mobile crisis services. Um, and we're expanding it to do a couple of things so that when someone calls in 911 and they're in the midst of a crisis, as opposed to sending law enforcement and a paramedic out to the scene, we will be able to be dispatched. Um, that is something we're working on right now with our emergency medical service team Um to be able to receive those dispatches so that we can go out and, and be able to handle that, that crisis situation and, and try to work with that individual in the community versus, you know, having paramedics or um, law enforcement go out, especially if it's not a medical emergency. The other thing is being able to make this model sustainable so that other providers can be able to open up and provide the services in their community and then for us to expand our own services within our facility as well um, because there is there is a is there's a need there's a want we just got to be able to meet that need and make it sustainable not just for ourselves but for everyone else charlotte claiborne executive director of the bridge center for hope charlotte thank you for your time today thank you i appreciate it From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. The Louisiana Center for the Book in the State Library of Louisiana is celebrating Black History Month with a virtual presentation featuring New Orleans native and former Louisiana Poet Laureate Mona Lisa Saloy, whose books of poetry focus on Black Creole culture. Saloy's presentation, titled some History of the Seventh Ward shines a spotlight on this historic Black neighborhood in New Orleans. It debuts today on YouTube and Facebook. With more on the presentation and life in the Seventh Ward, Mona Lisa Saloy joins us now. Mona Lisa, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Mona Lisa, you'll be talking about what is home to you. You actually live in the Seventh Ward. For those who don't live in New Orleans, though, would you help us locate Seventh Ward? Let's start there. Now, historically, the Seventh Ward begins at the river and ends at the lake and is anchored between Elysian Fields and Esplanade. That is the original design of the city. 
in wards. And in France, they call it, well, particularly in Paris, arrondissement. Subsequent city council members change the districts, but the historic seventh ward begins at the river, ends at the lake, and is between Elysian Fields and Esplanade. So Treme is part of it, and the French Quarters is part of it. Currently, it's not because it stops at Rampart and goes to Gentilly. But when I speak of the seventh ward, I'm talking about the whole area that is the historic area. And it is home. Let's talk some about the history. What's the historical significance of this area, the seventh ward? This is where Jelly Roll Martin lived. This is where Alan Toussaint spent the end of his life. This is where Joe Jones, you talk too much, you worry me to death. Jazz drummer who toured Europe in the early days and played all over. So New Orleans, and the seventh ward is full of artists. John Scott spent the end of his life here, the great artist, visual artist and sculptor. It's home to a lot of creative people, but craftsmen from million dollar plasters, the Poiré family, to carpenters, master carpenters, cement finishers, bricklayers. This was the heart of New Orleans. This is where the Espinade Ridge lived, where the black quasi, I want to say millionaires, I don't know what the dollar equivalent in those days, but a lot of those early mansions on Esplanade, that was our uptown. Mm. And many, many grand homes and just a lot of family. Oh, we had shoemakers, the, the Della Rose brothers. Obviously, lots of rich history here, but how did it become your choice to talk about in your presentation for Black History Month? Well, one of the things I also do is I work for the Neighborhood Association. As a matter of fact, I'm the founding president. We've been doing that about 12 years. And what I learned, the Seventh Ward was not on many historic maps. So we partnered with other groups to expand the cultural district so that the Seventh Ward is indeed in the historic maps and is recognized for all the contributions that have come out of it historically. The Marching 100 St. Aug High School that has played in all the major parades around this country, including the Rose Bowl, including New York City. This is an in demand. That was the home of John Baptiste. We have created so much joy, so many actors, actresses, just so much culture. I wanted to celebrate that. And let me tell you, it's not comprehensive, but it is as comprehensive as I could get in a short period. <laughs> we're, we're speaking with New Orleans native, former Louisiana Poet Laureate, Mona Lisa Saloy. Her presentation, Some History of the Seventh War, debuts today. Mona Lisa, having grown up in the Seventh War, talk some about the culture and the people. It's always been very welcoming. And from having our own dry cleaners to shoemakers to dressmakers. I mean, the majority of the women in my neighborhood, so did Haspel Brothers. They made tropical seersucker suits. So many of us grew up knowing how to sew. I literally sewed my way through my undergraduate degree as a result. And I learned tailoring at Joseph S. Clark High School, by the way, but it was wonderful. And the foodways, of course, everybody cooks well. Nobody's gumbo is the same. So there's always something delightful to experience at one another's homes. We had backyard parties, waistline parties, baby. You, your entrance fee was the size of your waistline. 
And in Harlem, they might have had rent parties, but we had house parties and backyard parties and all kinds of eating crawfish on the sidewalk. I mean, on the, the steps to the front porches because it was shaded. And so we live outside when it's hot and we share and we speak to when we see each other. We greet each other and it's the warmest thing. It's it's like a song every day. Mm. Hey now, how you doing? How's your mom in there? Mm-hmm. It's genuine. I think we should note this is just one of of many avenues where you share your love for Black Creole culture. You've authored several poetry collections, Red Beans and Ricely Yours, uh, Second Line Home, and your most recent book, Black Creole Chronicles. Is this year's selection for the one book, One New Orleans Community Read? Congrats on that. Tell us some about the book. I am honored. Black Creole Chronicles came about in response to the many questions I was asked traveling the state as Poet Laureate. I visited many areas, some I had never been to, and they were just so welcoming, but curious. And the whole thing about a Creole was a Creole. Well, black Creoles are descendants of mixed enslaved Africans born in the new world. And there are millions of us in the world from the Caribbean to Canada. And even South America. So, and there's Creole languages, but in New Orleans, because more Africans were sold from here than any other place in the country, we kept a lot of that. They say when you when you hear a drummer from here, they play New Orleans. So the polyrhythms, the dancing, the African masking into the black masking Indians, the beating also African, we kept a lot of that. The foodways. I mean, soul food is now cuisine. It's hot cuisine. So I really wanted to celebrate that. And everything from my second grade teacher, who was kind of a chocolate, Lena, what do you call it? A sort of a host to young minds, to Samuel Du Bois Cook, who was president at Dillon University for 20 years, to the winningest coach in college basketball, um, uh, football at an HBCU. It's so just honoring the past and the present, including some things that we weren't taught in school. There's romance after 70, there's hurricane poems, there's we matter poems, there's also, of course, pandemic poems. And I wanted to just I guess evolve, share the evolution of my storytelling in verse and to honor many of the shoulders on which I stand, including some in my family and neighborhood, a lot of neighborhood stories. So I'm grateful for that. Some joyful and give you a taste of that paradise of the seventh ward and some hurtful. Everything's not perfect, it's real life. And so I try to honor all of that And that's how the collection came about. So the fact that One Book, One New Orleans has honored me by being their selection, I'm thrilled. Former Louisiana Poet Laureate Mona Lisa Saloy. Her presentation, Some History of the Seventh Ward, debuts today on the Louisiana Book Festival's YouTube and Facebook pages. Mona Lisa, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Black History Month, y'all. 
From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guests, former Louisiana Poet Laureate Mona Lisa Saloy and Executive Director of the Bridge Center for Hope, Charlotte Claiborne. Our managing producer is Matt Bloom. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.